Hi folks, I'm Ian McKenzie. Welcome to episode two of Political Bites, our new podcast series from the School of Politics and International Relations at the University of Kent. In this episode, we welcome Dr. Gareth Mott. He's a lecturer in security and intelligence here in the school. Gareth is also based in the Institute for Advanced Studies in Cybersecurity. Today, we're going to be discussing cyberterrorism. So Gareth, let's dive straight in. What is cyberterrorism? Okay, so there's a short answer and a slightly longer answer to this question. I'll try and tackle both. So the short answer is that cyberterrorism as a term is not conclusively defined. We cannot categorically say whether a particular instance is or is not cyberterrorism. It is worth pointing out that it exists in legislation. So, for example, in the UK, in the Terrorism Act 2000, uh, under the definitions of terrorism section and then section 2e of that there is a parameter and a clause for uh, electronic interference by terrorist organizations so that exists that's in the legislation we have legislated in the uk to counter or criminalize instances of cyber terrorism even if you couldn't use that let's say for example uh, an attack was perpetrated by a group or an individual who is not part of the prescribed terrorist group list you might be able to criminalise them under the Computer Misuse Act 1990 and then supplement that with, for example, a murder charge, a manslaughter charge or a criminal damage charge. The longer answer is that we have some inclination of what it may be. So we have debates within academia as to what cyberterrorism is or is not. The term itself has existed since the 1980s uh, in a science fiction capacity. So Barry Collin actually coined the term and he suggested that cyberterrorism is hacking with a body count. And that quite succinctly captures uh, the core logic of what we probably mean when we use the term cyberterrorism, right? One of the main definitions that we often reach for as academics in this field is that provided by Dorothy Denning about 20 years ago to the United States Congress. And so she, she stated that in order to constitute cyberterrorism, an attack had to meet certain conditions. So we speak of two conditions. The first being... Computers need to be the toolkit by which the attack is carried out and or computers need to be the target. So, for example, if you walked into an important data center with a bomb and blew it up, that might constitute cyberterrorism. But really, when we use the term cyberterrorism, we tend to get most excited about the use of computing systems to target other computing systems, specifically, probably, key utilities. So we're talking about your water grid, your electricity grid, and your banking, finance sector, um, and so forth. The second condition, building up on that, is that the attack has to cause significant harm. So really, people have to die, or there has to be such significant damage to infrastructure that fear is, is garnered in the attack. Remember, of course, in any terrorist attack, generally speaking, the direct target is not the people who actually get hurt. The direct target is the broader population, who then, uh, then, then exhibit fear. Right, they, they witness the attack, they hear of the attack, and then they exhibit fear as a result. And in, in so doing, the terrorist organization hope that they might be able to achieve their political aims through this generation of fear. Right? We have broad consensus within the discipline that cyberterrorism has not occurred yet, as far as we're aware. And we'd also generally differentiate cyberterrorism from general use of IT systems by terrorist organizations. So terrorist organizations like everyone else use IT systems regularly. It makes their lives much more easier, much more efficient. So for example, the fact that the airline tickets for the perpetration of 9-11 were purchased online does not make that 
does not make 9-11 an example of cyber-terrorism because, of course, they bought the tickets online. You know, it, it's just much more convenient to do that. So cyber-terrorism is not the general use of IT systems for um, recruitment. It's not the general use of IT systems for um, discussion or preparation of an attack. Cyber-terrorism is the use of computing systems to target other computing systems, really, at the end of the day. Can you be so sure that it's not occurred? Given the potential damage an attacker could cause... Why have terrorist groups not conducted such an attack? Okay, so it is not that terrorist organisations or or members of terrorist organisations are too thick or too stupid. Quantitative data on the membership of terrorist organisations generally indicates that we can't categorically say that there's a a type of individual who who joins and is active within a terrorist organisation. We can say that they are overwhelmingly male, right? So the membership of terrorist organizations, the active membership, tends to be men rather than women. But beyond that, we we cannot say whether they are wealthy or poor. We cannot say whether they are intelligent or thick. There is no categorical data that indicates either way. They're a broad spectrum of society. So you might therefore expect that actually within some terrorist organizations, there are individuals who are computing scientists or computing engineers and who will know how to code software and will know how to code cyber weapons, potentially. And so the question is, why have they not taken advantage of this? I think one of the key factors in this is the fact that the development of a cyber weapon takes a significant amount of time and also probably a significant amount of resources. You require in-depth knowledge of the IT system you're targeting, right? So in the case of an attack that's trying to target the water supply or an electricity grid, these are systems that are controlled by a series of industrial control systems, right? These are kind of application-specific computers that are specifically designed with software and components to control the industrial systems behind the water water supply and the electricity grid and so forth. So in order to attack one, you need to have an in-depth knowledge of that particular control system. And they're all slightly different. Okay, you can learn about it, you can get, you can buy one and start to learn about it, but that takes time. And so if you're a terrorist organization and you want to be in the news, if you want your cause or your name or your face to be on the next day's newspaper, you're probably going to want to use an attack that you can have more direct control over. Right? So you're probably going to go for your kinetic attacks. So using a, a gun, using a bomb, driving a car, driving a truck or a van, and so forth. Right, Your kin- traditional kinetic means of carrying out terrorism will probably be favoured over the development of cyber weapons because the problem of developing the cyber weapon... Okay, let's say you develop the perfect cyber weapon to target a particular industrial control system. In the time that it took you to develop that cyber weapon, it is entirely possible that the owners of that industrial control system carried out a, a review of their security or contacted the supplier of the industrial control system who then themselves spotted this flaw that you're trying to exploit with this weapon and then they patch it. So in that interim, they may have spotted the flaw themselves, patched it, and then the cyber weapon you've been spending, you've been spending months developing is now completely worthless. It will not work on that particular industrial control system because the flaw you're trying to exploit to deliver your virus or to deliver your worm is just not going to work. I think from this perspective of a terrorist organization on top of that, a cyber attack in and of its own sake is probably not particularly attractive. What we're looking at really is probably a hybrid attack. And you can look at fictionalized accounts of this, for example, Skyfall or Die Hard 4. Right, in which we have hacking supplemented with kinetic attacks like bombs and, and so forth. That would be kind of a holy grail for quite a few terrorist organizations. But again, knowing that the digital element of that cyber attack is going to work is, is not guaranteed and coordinating it would be quite tricky. So again, they're probably for the time being going to stick to what we call bullets and bombs rather than bits and bytes. Would you dare to speculate? I really can't say. 
Obviously, I'm not in the state intelligence community. If I were in a state intelligence community, obviously, I couldn't talk about it. Um, but I'm not in the intelligent, state intelligence community, so I can't really speculate. But okay, let's give it a go. So, remember, a terrorist organization, in order to carry out a cyber terrorist attack, would have, a have to have access to the time and resources. Now, we know that it is not beyond the capacity of terrorist organizations to buy expertise. All right. So, for example, we know that FARC in Colombia have, in the past, proactively worked with Hezbollah, which some countries around the world consider a terrorist organization. So Hezbollah are experts in the development of tunnels, right? So they build tunnels along particular parts of the border between Israel and its neighboring states. They build fantastic tunnels through which they can funnel people, they can funnel weapons, they can funnel ammunition, they can funnel money and, and so forth. Now, now, FARC, obviously very good at facilitating the production of cocaine and the transit of cocaine. And so they wanted access to this knowledge of tunnel construction so that it could effectively streamline some of the transportation of the drugs through heavily secure regions. And so they had effectively meetings between the two groups in which they were given instructions and guidance on how to develop these tunnels. And in exchange, Hezbollah received some drugs as payment, right? So, so they received bulk payments in, in drugs. So perhaps the terrorist organization could buy, buy out expertise in the development of cyber weapons, right? They could commandeer disenfranchised employee working for a utility company and so forth. That, that's it's possible, but of course it's high risk, right? So the risk that that person then talks to, talks to the police about your approach to them, it's just a really high risk. So you're probably going to want to have to, at the end of the day, you're probably going to want to develop the weapons in-house with people you can trust rather than try to do it outside of the house. People you may not be able to trust in a purely transactional basis, right? So they could buy out the skills, but they're probably not going to. So really, I think what we're likely to see, and I don't know when we'd see this kind of attack, I really can't suggest a timeline, but the most foreseeable instance in which we might see a cyber terrorist incident would be an attack that's launched by a state-endorsed entity, right? So like a state, which, you know, and states do have the, the resources and the capacity to develop both cyber defense and cyber offense. Uh, we know that most countries in the world at this point have some kind of cyber defense and cyber offense capacity. In the region of 40 states in the world have advanced cyber offense capacity, you know, the kind of weapon systems that really can take out utility systems. So a state might not be able to direct, act directly, but it could act indirectly through proxies Right, so pseudo-terrorist organizations that are effectively acting in proxy for the state could hit utility systems in a particular region, and then perhaps the state could again use other proxies to go in and start to bomb places or start to force people out, right? So forcibly remove people from the region. And so in, in, in so doing, because you've taken out part of the utility sector, you might be able to exacerbate the issue, right? And we know that this is possible. We know, we know, for example, from an attack on a German steel mill a few years ago that you can target control systems. We know, obviously, from Stuxnet in 2009 and 2010, where America and Israel targeted Iranian nuclear centrifuges at Natanz. We know from an instance in Ukraine where the electricity grid was taken out for a while that you can target these systems. So, for example, Russia, Russia might want to target parts of eastern Ukraine. The United States and Israel might want to use proxies to attack Syria or attack Iran, and, and so forth. This is a possibility. Whether we would call it terrorism or not, if it, if, if it is not a prescribed terrorist group here in the UK, is up for debate. But that, that's probably the most likely scenario that we'd see, right? So a, a non-state entity 
which might be a terrorist group or a kind of slightly pseudo-terrorist group, receives backing, receives support from a state entity. I mean, it, again, North Korea is, is considered the pariah state that is, actually has quite advanced cyber offensive capacity. You know, a state like North Korea might endorse proxy, proxy groups to carry out a cyber terror attack on its behalf. Who should prevent cyber terrorism from occurring? Okay, so chiefly the state. I mean, the chief responsibility of countering terrorism is the responsibility of the nation state, the government and its intelligence services, the police, and so forth. That is the responsibility of the state first and foremost, but it's not that simple. And it's never that simple, right? Obviously, the internet started life as DARPAnet. It was an American project to develop a resilient network that could mean that American military outposts could still communicate with each other because they had a relatively decentralized network. Okay, so the Soviet Union cut off part of that network. The remaining network would have the slack, would have the capacity to mean that all those military outposts in the United States and elsewhere could continue to talk to each other. That was the core raison d'etre of the internet. So it started life as a, as a state state project but the contemporary world wide web which it which the same technology then was developed and, and became and became commercialized the world wide web as we know it is not a state entity and states in parts of the world have significant control over it but fundamentally the technology is not is not a state and state apparatus is not a state infrastructure it is privatized when you use the internet it is not like walking through a public square it is more akin to walking through a private mall, right? It is a commercial space. It is also a commercially and privately owned space. It is not a public space in the same in the way that we like to think of it as. What that means is, in order to ensure that we have safety protocols and security protocols in place, and that patches and security patches are released and so forth, this is a, an endeavour that the government cannot do alone. The government have to have the support and the goodwill of the private sector. So, for example, you need the support of the internet service providers themselves. You need the support of the utility companies themselves. Remember, often these are not nationalised entities. They are kind of semi-nationalised or they're privatised entity. Um, so you need their support. And there's actually a kind of a ongoing contention between both groups. So the government don't want to be fully responsible for cyber security because of the expense of it and because they don't actually physically own a lot of the assets. But at the same time, obviously, if you're a private company, your core raison d'etre is to provide profits for your shareholders. Your core raison d'etre is just to generate profit. So if you have to spend vast amounts of money on security, you're going to hit your margins, right? And, and you'll pay less dividends to your shareholders. So there's a... <laughs> There's a, a, a source of contention here in that they'll, they'll approach the government and ask for more money or ask for assistance in setting up the security systems and setting up the features that they need. But ultimately, both parties are, are nonetheless responsible for the cyber security. More broadly, everyone is actually responsible. Everyone who uses IT systems needs to be able to be in a position to understand cyber security and engage in what we call cyber, cyber hygiene. Right? So they need good cyber hygiene practices every day in order to ensure that the systems are not unnecessarily vulnerable. Remember, in any given IT system, generally speaking, a good rule of thumb is that the weakest point in that system is not the, is not the components, it's not the silicon, it's not the software, 
It's not the binary code that underpins the operating system and the applications that people use and the programs that people use. The weakest point is the human being, right? And so the human being is the weakest point. The human being is the point at which, you know, people make mistakes. They're vulnerable. They can be co co coerced or they can make, an, uh, make you know, accidentally give away information that could be useful for a criminal enterprise, potentially including a terrorist organization. So the shortest answer is that ultimately the state is generally speaking the entity that is most responsible for countering terrorism but at the end of the day when it comes to cyber terrorism everyone has a part to play thank you for joining us today gareth it's been really fascinating thank you very much ian it was my pleasure that's it for episode two we'll be back next week with more if you have a topic you would like to see us discuss then please contact us via email paulirnews at kent.ac.uk or connect with us on Twitter or Instagram which you can find in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Mm -hmm.